This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jen. Last Sunday, um, we were looking at what we know about God. How do we know about God? And what is the connection between God and a baby born in a major in Bethlehem? We looked at the idea that there are two books that God has given us. The first is the book of nature, which David refers to in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. The skies, all of nature, our world, the heavens, display knowledge, reveal who God is. It's a sort of general revelation, though. To understand who God is in his particular nature, we have to go to Scripture, the second book. If nature is the first book written by God, nature is the second book. What theologians call the spectacles of Scripture allow us to see God more clearly. And what do we see when we read Scripture? Scripture reveals that that God who created everything is actually a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A set of relationships, a community of love from all eternity. And we looked at what that means in practice. Only a trinity can be self-sufficient in love. God's love is perfect. It does not need anything beyond himself, beyond that community of love, that set of relationships. And therefore, when God chooses to love, when he chooses to love us, he does so freely. He doesn't require a relationship with us to complete himself. And therefore, he can freely, graciously bestow love on people who are not lovable. There's nothing in us that needs to evoke love. And that's how we can understand Jesus. Jesus is that relationship brought into the world. Jesus is God entering our world and bringing us the possibility of a relationship to participate in the family of God as children of God. So last Sunday we looked at this idea of Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This morning I would like to look at the idea of God as Father. How is God Father, and what does it mean to us? 
This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to to divorce her quietly. In that time and place, it would have been scandalous for a woman to have sex outside of marriage, much less become pregnant. The future of Mary was pretty bleak. She would have been an outcast. She would have had a miserable existence. And it's not just a scandal. The whole culture, like many uh, peasant and tribal cultures, was based on the idea of primogenitor. What does that mean? That's the idea that the first son inherits the bulk of the wealth and the land and the position of the father. There's a reason for that. If you divide up your wealth and your land amongst all your children, after a few generations, what could have been at one time a fairly substantial holding and a significant position is diluted as it is spread around amongst all the offspring. And especially if you give wealth to a girl. She's married off to another family or another tribe. She takes that wealth with her. And so it's the practice of many peasant cultures and many tribal cultures that you try to keep the wealth together by making the firstborn son the inheritor of all or the bulk of the wealth and position of the family. So Jesus is not just Joseph's, uh, if he's not just Joseph's biological son, he's a threat to that whole system, the whole logic of primogenitor. He undermines the whole legal concept of that time and that place. But after he had considered this divorce, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. What is happening here? Jesus is not Joseph's biological offspring, not his son. But by naming him and bringing him into his family, he is adopting him. Jesus is being adopted by Joseph. Joseph names him and takes him as his legal son. So the whole notion of primogenitor is maintained. And the name, by the way, Jesus, comes from the Hebrew Yeshua, which means Yahweh, the name given to Moses in the burning bush. Yahweh is salvation. Jesus is God saving Israel and saving from the generations of Abraham all the way down to Joseph. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. 
So why do I bring up all this legal stuff? What does it mean that Jesus came into our world? Well, Jesus is the Son of God, the Father. Remember, God is triune. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. A set of relationships. God is not just a thing. God is personal. God is community. God is family. And so when Jesus comes into our world, he brings that relationship with him. To become a Christian means to be legally adopted into the family of God. God becomes our father. That's how Jesus taught us to refer to him. And Jesus, in return, becomes a son of Joseph, a human father. Jesus legally becomes a responsible human being. We legally become part of God's family. And it happens right here in the birth of Jesus to Joseph and Mary. You see, there's a sort of general idea in the culture that because we're human beings, because we exist at all, we're sort of children of God, however you conceive of God. But that idea is not in the Bible. As J.I. Packer put it, the idea that all are children of God is not found in the Bible anywhere. The gift of sonship to God becomes ours not through being born, but through being born again. To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. Sonship, that is, having the position of firstborn son, by the way, this is, of course, available to men and women who become Christians. Sonship to God, then, is a gift of grace. It is not a natural, but an adoptive sonship. And so the New Testament explicitly pictures it. So you see there are two adoptions here. In becoming one of us, Jesus Christ is adopted by Joseph and becomes part of the human family. What does he bring with him? The gift of relationship to God as Father. Through Christ, we are now able to be adopted into God's family legally. That's why the New Testament calls it a covenant, a legal relationship based on adoption. Paul puts it this way. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. This notion of sonship is key because it means our position, our relationship to God is not some emotion. It is not some decision of ours. It is a legal position based on what Christ did under the law. And as such, it can never be taken away. 
It is actually the foundation of our faith and what it means to be a Christian. And the extent to which you understand and believe in this idea is a great diagnosis of who and what you are. Are you an orphan in the world? Are we orphans? Alone, having to take care of ourselves, having to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps? Or are we sons of God? And by the way, when you say sons of God, remember what you're saying. It's not disparaging women. It's saying that men and women become the inheritors, the first inheritors of all the wealth of God. That's what sonship means. Get the name, the position, the wealth, the riches. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba, Father. When you and I are baptized, that is a public witness, a sign pointing to a spiritual truth. Though we are washed clean by the sacrifice, the blood of Christ, spiritually, and the Holy Spirit takes up residence in us. And that's a permanent position. That is now the new identity and the basis of connection and relationship with God. We can now say, our Father, and we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Which means we can never be lost. Which means, no matter where we go and what we do or what we say, what we don't do, what what the world has to say about us, we are now, in God's sight, pure, and perfect and holy. When God sees us, he sees Jesus. He sees the Holy Spirit in us at work. And so this is the basis of Christian identity. So I'm going to give you a test. Do you believe this? I'm going to give you some comparisons between people who are orphans and still think like orphans and people who understand this relationship, this new relationship with God as sons to our Father. Which is closer to you of these statements? Which are you closest to? Which best describes your relationship with God and your existence in this world? The first test, how do you think about grace? Remember, because God's love is self-sufficient, He graciously chooses to love us based on his decision, not in anything on us. Orphans tend to think of grace as God helping out a little bit while they try hard to live up to being a Christian, while they try to live a good life. Grace is a sort of supplement. I see as orphans work hard to be worthy of calling God Father. But if you believe you really are a child of God, grace is a sweet gift of love. It is the nature of your relationship. You don't have to be afraid. You can never lose it. How do you think about your faith? If you're an orphan, faith is something that you have to do. It's personal effort an attempt to believe in God without doubting, 
without being troubled by thoughts that maybe he's not really there. And if you do doubt, if you do feel alienated or lost, then you failed in your faith. How do children children's think about faith? Faith is faith in what God has done to you, what God is doing to you. It is about God's and Christ's faithfulness, not about something that we do for him. And because God is faithful, we can never lose our faith. We can never lose that connection. Obedience. Why are orphans obedient? Because they don't want to screw up. They don't want to upset God. They're looking for ways to prove that they are worthy. Prove that they're worthy to call God Father. They tend to set unrealistic goals. It's all about being a good person, being the right person. Living up to expectations. That's death, by the way, living up to other, expect, other people's expectations. What if you're a child of God? Then obedience is easy. Because obedience comes out of love. There's no requirement for a child to be obedient, to be part of the family. Think of your own children, those that you have them. If membership in the family depended on obedience, all your kids would be orphans by now. That's not the way it works. Obedience is a growing sense of being loved by the family and therefore being obedient out of participation in the life of the family. It's something that grows. It is the fruit of the spirit. How do you deal with others? If you think it's all about how worthy you are, then you tend to hide from others. If you're an orphan, you have to present this ideal of worthiness and perfection, lack of failure. Yeah, become self-righteous. It's hard to say, I'm sorry, or forgive me, or I repent, if everything depends on how good you are, what, you're, what you look like, what your persona is in the world. But if you're a child of God, then you can be open and transparent. You know you're unworthy of God anyway. It's a miracle that he cares for you at all. And therefore, repentance, forgiveness, saying I'm sorry, comes easily. It's a natural part of being in relationship with God. You can do this in every area of your life. Orphans live lives that are fearful, where they have to hide, while they have to maintain this image of themselves. They're always afraid, because they might lose God's love. Now, I can see the children gathering over there. Why are they gathering? Because we're about to hear the Christmas story acted out by our children. And they're going to be adorable. They're going to be cute. It's going to be sloppy and chaotic. I always love it when the sheep run away from the shepherds. You will see drama. You will see tears and rivalries. Crooks are a great way to bash other people, by the way. Conflicted agendas, crossed purposes, wandering attention spans, stray shepherds. It'll just be like real life. 
And through these fallible children, these chaotic children, you're going to see a story emerge. The children are pretending, but the story that they're telling is real. As C.S. Lewis once said, if you look at children dressing up in their parents' clothes, they look ridiculous. They clump around in shoes that are too big, the sleeves hang down too low, they trip over hems that cover their feet. They're cute and ridiculous because they're wearing clothes that don't fit. But they're acting out a truth. In them is this life that is growing. And children grow up. And one day they will fill those clothes. The pretend becomes reality because in them is this power, is this life that has a purpose. That is exactly true of Christians. In every Christian, is the Holy Spirit at work, growing us in Christ-likeness. You know, when we say, our Father, when we pray, we are saying something absolutely outrageous. We are putting ourselves literally in Jesus' place. He is the true Son of God the Father. And we're saying we are like Jesus. Not only like Jesus, but we are taking his place. We are calling God Father. We're calling ourselves Christians. We're like children pretending to be adults. But there's a truth there. We are becoming Christ-like because the Holy Spirit is at work with us. We are growing in obedience and love. We are learning to be part of God's family. So as you see this story unfold this morning, think about the big story. Think about the invitation. We are being invited as children of God to be part of this story. To be Christ-like in the world. To take up his agenda and his purpose to become part of the family business, part of the family project. We're pretending, but it's a great and majestic pretending because it's going to end up being true. And one day, we will see Christ face to face. And he's going to be beautiful, and we're going to be beautiful because the Holy Spirit is going to ensure it. As you watch the children pretend, remember, this is us in God's eyes. But the story unfolds anyway, no matter how chaotic our lives. One day, this story will be our story. Let's pray.